0: Okay, everyone. Welcome to episode four of the Steve Laidlaw podcast. I'm pleased to be joined by one half of the Keeping Carlson Dynamic duo, Brian Calm. Brian, how are you doing?
1: Hey, Steve. I'm doing great. It's so nice to be here and be a guest on someone else's podcast. Usually when it's my own, there's a lot of pressure to make it awesome. But if I'm just someone else's guest, I can screw up all I want and it's not my problem.
0: Yeah, absolutely. No pressure, and. Uh, You'll know that this is just my fourth ever podcast as a host. So you can skewer me after and, and tell me how I did.
1: I think it's like my second podcast ever as a guest. So that makes you the more experienced podcaster here. So so you can also skewer. Anyone listening, feel free to skewer. Okay.
0: <laughs> it's it's going to be a barbecue pit out here. <laughs> um, so we're going to do the 1998 redraft and as i've discussed on these pods i was really young back in the 90s and i imagine you were as well like what where is your head at in 1998 what do you remember
1: so i was just finishing middle school and heading into high school and i did a, i took a little trip down memory lane like just for the year 1998 period and you know just to get a sense of the time and place i always like to see what the the top songs and movies were So the the song that was number one for the longest time in 1998 was the Brandy and Monica classic The Boy Is Mine, which is still on the regular playlist at my home, followed by the, the top selling single of 1998 was a terribly disgusting song that I had no idea was disgusting called Too Close By Next, which even with my adult knowledge of exactly what's happening in this song is still on the regular home playlist as well.
0: My goodness, uh, neither of those registered for me at all, a- and thank goodness I have no memory of those. Uh, um,
1: yeah. Oh, I, like, I can remember the music videos, shot for shot, for both of them as well. The Brandy and Monica one had a, like, a, a place close to my heart. And then movies, I get, my, movies I get to share. This is one of the most astonishing facts that I can drop on anyone about myself, and it maybe speaks to how boring I might be, but my big confession to most people is that, I never saw Titanic, the highest grossing movie of nineteen ninety-eight. Haven't seen it.
0: No kidding. Yeah, that one uh that one won a lot of awards and has got some legendary memes and
1: Yeah. <laughs> Have you seen it or do you just know it from the memes? Like I, I don't know what our age difference is here.
0: Uh I'm probably a year or two behind you.
1: Okay. Um, so like did you see like there was also Armageddon and saving private Ryan and something about Mary? Like these are all like I went to the theater with friends to, to watch.
0: Yeah, I've seen pretty much all these movies, but I was not watching them in the theater. I, I was playing catch-up.
1: Right. right.
0: So 1998, that puts us at the start of the, the latest round of NHL expansion with Nashville. So that bumps us up to 27 teams, and we're going to see Nashville is, is heavily involved in this draft. And there's just a crazy amount of pick trading that goes on in this first round with 12 of the 27 picks changing hands at some point. So we've got a lot of fodder to dig into. So I think we'll get started here discussing the picks that went down. But if you want to jump in, go ahead, Brian.
1: Well, I also like wanted to jump in because like I want you to know in preparation for this podcast, I relived 1998. And while looking, first off, it's funny, there were only 26 teams in the league in 97, 98, right? And you look at the bottom seven teams, like I I just went to the bottom of the standings and it's such a funny mix of new and old teams. You had Tampa and Florida. So the two Florida teams like coming into the league, not uh, within, I guess, Tampa was 92 Florida was I think 94 or maybe it was 95 somewhere around there uh they're at the bottom still these Florida teams in like a non-hockey market and Anaheim so these three non-hockey markets occupying the basement along with Vancouver Toronto the Rangers and the Flames so like you have this mix of new uh, like not traditional at all and then old traditional and I'm sure there was like so much sniping about how, why, are the, why are Tampa and Florida playing from people in Toronto and New York? Meanwhile, their own teams were fledgling. And, uh, and then the other thing I really remember from 1998 was that the Sens won a playoff series. For the first time ever, they were the eighth seed against the New Jersey Devils. And I remember I had the playoff, like there was an insert in the local newspaper uh, that said like, woohoo, we're in round one. And no one's really expecting to win, but, like, I put it up on the wall next to where the TV was in my home. And then they actually beat this New Jersey team that had Doug Gilmore on it, because we all think of Doug Gilmore as a New Jersey devil, and Steve Thomas, uh, also a guy we think of as a New Jersey devil. And I actually – and then the the Sens went on to lose in the second round to the eventual Eastern Conference champions – Washington Capitals but I did get another insert in the newspaper to put up it was woohoo round two and of course the Sens were led past the Devils by Damian Rhodes and his 936 save percentage he outdueled Martin Brodeur who had just a 927 save percentage it was this crazy series where only one single game it was a six game series only one of the games saw both teams score more than one goal. There's, like, fewer than four goals on average per game. It was Jacques Lemaire, master of the trap, versus Jacques Martin, student of the trap, behind the benches. So, like, it it was just this intensely defensive trap hockey, which was boring in the regular season. But when it got to the playoffs, you're just on the edge of your seat, not in, like, the most exciting way, but just like, oh, my God, don't screw up. Don't screw up.
0: Well, yeah, like, the hockey was played in mud back then. And it's very similar to the agony of anticipation that you also see so much in low-scoring games like soccer, where you know everything's going to turn on basically the one goal that actually happens, because yeah. only one goal is ever going to happen. And you brought up the, the kind of the contrast and the disparity between the teams that are sitting in really awful situations. and. You know, you've got some big market teams that, you know, we know today still some big market teams struggle because they're able to continue raking in that cash from the gate revenue and not have any pressure to really compete the way that some of the smaller market teams do. And then you also have the impacts of just terrible expansion rules. That do not allow these teams to compete right away, and then you couple that with the '90s just being awful for drafting. Talked about it in a previous podcasts, and '95 and '96 are drafts that will never be redrafted on this podcast series because they're just that bad. So I'm I'm never going back and doing those ones. It starts to pick up here. In 97 and 98, you've got some slam dunk picks with the number one. So we'll get into it. Number one, Tampa Bay is picking, and this is a result of some clever wheeling and dealing. They're, Tampa Bay is the worst team in the league that year, but there's still a draft lottery to come. So they figure out that they, they want some insurance on this. So they end up trading with San Jose who's making a big playoff push and San Jose earlier in the year had traded Kozlov to the reeling Florida Panthers in exchange for their first rounder and Kozlov he's he's a former sixth overall pick he ended up being the guy that they took with the sixth overall pick when they traded down from number two in 93 and that's uh, when Chris Pronger goes to Hartford so Panthers they're run by Brian Murray and he he's got some wins on his record but this doesn't end up looking very good on him at all. He thinks that Kozlov's a star and he's going to be better than any player in this draft year, which I, that just strikes me as complete myop, because there's a slam dunk in this draft, Vinny Lecavalier at the top. He just scored 100 points in his 16-year-old year in the queue as, as an absolute man child. And if if you've been doing any scouting, you know this guy's coming. Like, there's a monster in this draft. So he makes that trade, gets Kozlov, thinks he's a star. And then six games later, he fires his coach and takes over his head coach. And it is, like, the first in a string of Panthers GMs to take over the reins as GM of that franchise. And so, like, you know, we, we remember it happening with Tom Rowe and, Gerard Glant and the, and the taxi cab incident and Rick Dudley does it as well. And so does Jacques Martin, who you mentioned, uh, of Ottawa fame and like, that's four times in a a 2017 history, which is four times too many, frankly. So they, they make that terrible trade and it sets up San Jose in a situation where they might have two lottery picks, uh, very, very reminiscent of, of what's happening this season with the Ottawa senators, but San Jose is in one of those tough markets and they want to win. Doug Wilson is on record saying they have terrible gate revenues when they don't make the playoffs. So And they haven't made the playoffs much at the start of their uh, franchise history. So they're really making a push. So Tampa Bay takes advantage of this and they trade them Brian Marchment and and, uh, another guy in exchange for the rights to flip top picks. So now they essentially have two of the best chances in the lottery and it ends up working out that Florida jumps them in the lottery and then they swap picks with San Jose. So Tampa Bay gets number one and they take Vinny LeCavalier who everyone knows is is the number one pick well ahead of time and the Lightning owner at the time Art Williams declares that LeCavalier is going to be the Michael Jordan of hockey which is maybe why we look back on his career with a little bit of disappointment.
1: That's so funny that there was that hype around Le Cavalier, like from the owner specifically. I remember the general hype about Le Cavalier being this, you know, the next big Canadian player, the next big guy who's going to, you know, grow and be a franchise cornerstone and be a captain and be leadership. And like he also picks up penalty minutes, so we like that. But that he got that boost from ownership reminds me of the way when Tampa had their next big opportunity at number one to draft Steven Stamkos. Remember they started that whole campaign around him with it was like got milk styled stickers for anyone who remembers that ad campaign. They had st- seen Stamkos stickers that were I think were even posted around town before the draft even happened. Like Tampa was just I mean there was no reason not to but they were telegraphing their their pick this is the guy that we're going to get. So it's funny that they have this history of being like, this is the guy we're getting and we're going to build him up so freaking much that even if he's amazing, it's still not going to feel like he realized his potential.
0: Right. And they get the number one pick in the next year's draft, but there's in 99 and we went through this on the, on the 99 redraft pod with Ian Gooding, but there is not a slam dunk at the top of the draft. And so they're not telegraphing anything. And in fact, they trade out of that pick and they're, they're done with it entirely. So yeah, quite the dichotomy in their approaches to how they're going to draft at number one. And quite frankly, they draft at number one, probably a few too many times, but I shouldn't be speaking as an Euler fan.
1: (laughs) Right. Yeah. You, you, you forfeit all your rights to talk about, uh, to, to, just throw any even mild shade at a team for drafting too high too often.
0: Yeah, I'm shade free. I'm in fact a gleaming light bulb of <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so that that brings us up to the number 2 pick, which San Jose now has, but they decide at the draft that they're going to swap this pick and move down. So they give up the number two pick and in exchange they get the number three pick from nashville as well as the number 29 pick which ends up being jonathan chichu so the preds trade up and this is their first draft and they're thinking we want a franchise centerman to have for the next decade or two and leg plays for them for the next decade or two but They'll find that they're chasing that franchise centerman all the way until they make the Seth Jones, Ryan Johansson trade, and arguably even after that.
1: Yeah, and like Legwand was supposed to be this big franchise cornerstone, uh, like first ever draft pick of the Predators franchise. Of course, I should mention former Ottawa Senator. David Legwand, who had that, that great turn as a 34-year-old with the team in his second last season in the league. But, uh, sorry, that's not what we're talking about. But you can – look, I'm from Ottawa. If we're reliving any moment in time, I, I have to look at it through the frame of a sense fan. Um, but Legwand did all right with what was asked of him. Keep in mind, like, he played for a Barry Trots, David Poyle team pretty much the whole way through right? And this is a team that relied on goaltending, as Barry Trotts teams have always done. So that he wasn't being asked to be this flashy offensive centerman. He was being asked to be this solid two-way guy, and he filled that role pretty well. Uh, was never much more than a 40, 50-point guy on a consistent basis. Like I remember in my fantasy drafts, he was still never like, taken amongst the top players, or I was in one particular draft format where you took Every there were six drafters and everybody had to take one player from each team. And like whoever started the round would say, okay, I, I'm picking from Nashville. I'm going to take uh, Cliff Ronning or, you know, whoever the top Nashville Predator score was at the time. Then the next five drafters had to follow that. Um, and Legwand, I don't, I barely even think registered even in those days. So definitely didn't bring the offense or the excitement that you'd want your first ever franchise pick to to make but he certainly provided the stability and longevity someone you could build around not as like a centerpiece but somebody who could like hold the fort while you look for that centerpiece
0: yeah he's their franchise leader in goals points games played and he gave them 15 quality seasons but certainly if you were picking him in a fantasy pool then your fantasy pool was too deep and you needed to go back to the drawing so now San Jose's up. They've traded back from number three, and they take Brad Stewart. And you can kind of see what they're thinking. They just took Marlowe number two in '97, and now they're making a playoff push. Well, they they end up making the '98 playoffs, squeaking in, uh, having added Brian Marchment at the deadline. But they're still pretty bare on defense. They take a guy at number two in '96. But again, that draft is terrible, and, and he hasn't come along yet. So they're still looking for a franchise defenseman. And Stewart fits the bill at the time anyways. And he's he's very much in the mold of a 90s defenseman. And he's ultimately the piece in the Joe Thornton trade. So in a, in a roundabout way, that, that Nashville trade down they made gets them Thornton and Chichu.
1: Wow. So San Jose really looking good, looking better than the team. I mean, Brad Stewart was okay, right? A top four defenseman, probably. And like you said, very much in that 90s mold. I mean, you look at the way the league was in 98, and you can understand. And I'm going to play spoiler here for anyone who doesn't remember the 98 draft. And I don't mean to steal any of your thunder, Steve. But picks three, four, and five, all these big bruising defensemen because teams are drafting. In a league that is totally defense first, there was a a league record number of shutouts recorded, 160 in 97-98 led uh, with Hasek leading the way, followed by Brodeur and Belfour and Curtis Joseph in Edmonton. And then Jeff Hackett in Chicago uh, snuck his way in there. But basically half of all regular goalies in the 97-98 season had a goals against average lower than two and a half goals per game. Uh, Only two teams in the whole league averaged more than three goals per game, including the cup champ Detroit. So it's actually like, well, why didn't, uh, why didn't, why were these teams doubling down on defense when the actual most offensive team in the league, along with the St. Louis blues is the one that ended up winning the cup. Um, But essentially this was not an offensive league. And I guess teams felt like they really needed those, those big uh, quote unquote, stay at home guys to stay home, protect their net, and be able to play some sort of really conservative, trapping, unmoving, and frankly boring style.
0: Yeah, well, we we talked about it on the on the O four pod with Russ Cohen. And as a defenseman, you didn't need to be able to turn. You just needed to be able to get your stick on a guy and let him yeah. jet ski all the way back. So they were they were more looking to grab guys for the rodeo than they were for for, for hockey which brings us to number four Vancouver selects Brian Allen and he's getting comparisons to Chris Pronger which I mean that's basically based on frame and and his ability to uh to level some punishment it also sets up a an impossible standard
1: oh totally like there's no way who who became Chris Pronger after Chris Pronger I don't know anyone. That's not to say there haven't been other great defensemen. Like, look at the league. You can find a a good handful, but you're looking for someone to really play exactly in that image of Pronger, and it's not going to happen. So you're looking – Brian Allen did his job, right? He racked up a bunch of pims. He seemed to play the tough guy. If I remember correctly, he was, like, somewhat mobile as a defenseman, uh, but of course, not a whole lot of offense came. I, the thing is, I can't really tell exactly what teams were drafting for other than this big, sort of bruising defensive presence in the top five, which today, you know, I, I think since the draft that had, oh my gosh, Zach Bogosian was one, Petrangelo was another, and Doughty, I think this was like 2005. That's the
0: 08. That's the two- 08 draft with Stamkos okay. at the top that we talked about. I feel
1: about like before. since then, there hasn't been. Um, much of a focus, like, especially the, the Bogosian pick specifically. And not Luke much of a Shen. And Luke Shen, yes, okay. So, I, like, that was the last time teams needed to learn this lesson that teams should have learned in 98, which is don't draft these big defensemen without skating, without offensive talent in the top five, let alone top 10 or even top 20 of your draft.
0: Yeah, and that brings us to number five. The Anaheim Ducks take Vitali Vishnevsky, And I read a profile on him that described him as a loose cannon, drawing comparisons to Darius Kasparitis, and nicknamed him the freight train from Ukraine. So that makes me wish that Vishnevsky had a much longer and better career than he had, because I want the freight train from Ukraine to be a thing.
1: Totally, and that sounds very much like late '90s Southern U.S. marketing too. It's like every hockey player actually needs to be a wrestler, so let's give them some crazy catchphrase, uh, give them like slap some personality on them, and sell them to the fans. And unfortunately, it didn't work. Although Vishnevsky was a really fantastic piece on my EA Sports NHL series video game teams from like the early 2000s to the mid. He was like a, a heavy hitter kind of guy. He had the little hammer icon next to his name. He was really great that way. But in the NHL, uh, not so much.
0: Mm-hmm. So at number six, Calgary picking in the sixth hole for the second straight draft. And for the second straight draft, they, they take a bit of a disappointment this time around. It's Rico Fada, who strong junior player. He even scores a bunch in the AHL when he finally matriculates to pro. And he gets 200 NHL games, but he never quite sticks or or lives up to the hype.
1: No, and we were just talking. I was trying to figure out before I came on to join you, like, why? I mean, Rico Fado first off has a fantastic name. So that's one reason to be like, oh, yeah, I remember this guy. The other reason was there was so much hype around him for some reason. And I was trying to discern the reason uh, before I came on, and I couldn't. And, like, my first thought was that it had to be a World Juniors performance. And I look and I see, okay, 1999, he had four points in seven games and just one goal. So maybe it was a really big goal. I don't know. That year, it's fun, funny enough, Daniel Kachuk led the uh, Team Canada Juniors in scoring, and the Flames made that mistake too. So uh, Rico Fata didn't pan out, and even to the point that I can't remember why anybody was so pumped about him coming into his pro career.
0: Yeah, he had great junior numbers, but it, it just didn't seem to translate for whatever reason. Up at number seven, the New York Rangers take Manny Malhotra, who you mentioned video games, and Malhotra was always the guy that you would want to throw in there in, in, when you're playing NHL to steal every single face off and then get him off the ice as quickly as possible. Th- that'll be his legacy for me but reading back to what happens to him in new york it, it's absolutely criminal
1: what so, happened i mean he barely played i remember that but tell me more
0: so yeah he makes the team immediately upon being drafted but they only give him eight minutes a night and keep him up for the whole year anyway Ugh. and then the next year he makes the team again and they're like no six minutes a night is is what's going to get the most out of manny and At least they have the decency to send him down for the World Juniors, and then he spends the rest of his his second year splitting time between the AHL and the OHL. But then third year, nine minutes a night, rotting again. They trade him to Dallas for Martin Ruczynski, who immediately leaves as a free agent. And then in Dallas, it's the same shit, nine, ten minutes a night. And going back, John Muckler literally uses – the example of malhotra from his time in new york as a guide to his cautious handling of jason spezza when spezza is showing signs of being ready to make it and they keep him down in the ahl anyway and it's because of what happens with malhotra that he gets that treatment
1: that's so brutal i'm looking up his numbers here myself why have an 18 year old on your team if he's playing eight minutes and 36 seconds a night played 73 games 61 shots 16 points and that continued 18 19 20 like from 18 oh my gosh through to like 23 years old until he finally got to columbus a team that decided they wanted to play him he did nothing he had no opportunity which is it's sad it's like a career ruined so why you would jump and take this guy where you took him and not want to develop him by playing him in the pros in a meaningful way or a ton in the minors is just baffling to me Uh, but he did become that face-off specialist that you mentioned winning a career 60 percent of the draws he took that's got to be that's an all-time number right there
0: yeah it very well might be and when, when he does finally carve out that legitimate role in Columbus, he, he starts cranking out a few years of Selkie caliber shutdown play. He's awesome in Vancouver on that team that makes it to the finals. And he has that gruesome eye injury that, that he ends up toughing it out through uh, and, and coming back and playing the next season anyway. But just, you know, a, a star crossed career for him. Like he, he was a strong junior player. And if they let him go back to junior and continue, you know, dominate some kids his, his own age. Then he probably develops some offensive flair. And maybe when he, he develops, when he's ready, he, he could have this whole next level career that maybe it's not a hall of fame career, but certainly would be good enough to get him redrafted. And I don't think he's going to get redrafted in, in this draft because of how poorly it goes for him
1: no uh, he's not on my redraft list I can tell you that
0: so at number eight Chicago trades up from number 10 with Toronto in order to take Mark Bell and they give up a couple of mid-rounders to do it so and I don't think anything comes of those picks but it's still one of those cases where the team trades up and then they end up making the wrong pick like Mark Bell he has he has a solid pro career but at 10 the Maple Leafs take Nick Antropov and that ends up being a a much better pick even though Antropov at the time is seen as being way off the board and speaking of off the board we're going to go to number nine the New York Islanders in our latest edition of Mike Milbury channels Joe Bluth, I've made a huge mistake. He takes Mike Rupp, who scored 27 points in 64 games that season in the OHL. So it's pretty safe to say Milbury has never heard of analytics. Mind you, no one has at this point. But Rupp ends up having a real career. It's just the problem is it, it happens for the devils. He doesn't even sign with the Islanders. He goes back into the 2000 draft and the Devils take him in the 3rd round and he ends up scoring the Stanley Cup winning goal for them. I and remember the that. Islanders get nothing.
1: You know, for what it's worth, Mike Milbury didn't subscribe to, like doesn't subscribe to analytics and it's like okay, he took this guy who uh you know, I don't had like you said, 10 points in 26 games. Like he, he wasn't a very productive OHL player till his last couple of years there, where like for uh, an OHL player, he still was not top 10 draft material. And uh, so you're like, okay, well, how is Mike Milbury evaluating these guys? Maybe he has his own secret formula. It could have been analytics and he could have claimed it if Mike Rupp turned out. But it's weird that Milbury wasn't using analytics or just actually looking at the boxcars either to figure <laughs> out. I guess he, he liked his penalty minutes. Also, uh, Mike Rupp, if you're listening, ask someone if you can redo your last player photo that appears on Hockey HockeyDB. It's, it's unfortunate, and I think you deserve better.
0: Oh, poor Mike Rupp.
1: He, look, he yeah. looks like a, uh, like a fugitive.
0: <laughs> so as we mentioned, Toronto trades back. They take Nick Antropov, and he may appear in our redraft. It'll be interesting to see. Uh, number 11, Carolina takes Jeff Harima, who he plays 32 NHL games. Uh, he's he's on waivers a whole bunch of times. He, scored, he has a couple of 70-point seasons in the AHL, but ultimately it looks like he's a quad-A player. I don't even know how to pronounce his name. Sorry to Jeff.
1: Oh, that's okay. I'm sure he understands. It's happened to him all his life.
0: So then at number 12... Colorado has San Jose's actual pick. As we mentioned, involving the, the number one pick that originally came from Florida, the Sharks are heavily invested in a playoff push. So they end up trading their first and Sean Donovan uh, midseason in exchange for Mike Ricci and a second. And they squeak into the playoffs, so it ends up being worthwhile. But... It's a bit of a step back for Colorado, who had been in contention for so long. And they're the number two seed in the West this year. But they get upset in round one by a plucky Oiler team in Curtis Joseph's final season with the team. So ultimately, this deal ends up a coup for Colorado. But also, you know, maybe they could have done a little bit more. Maybe they don't get upset in the playoffs. But they take Alex Tangay, so it's a win.
1: That's a huge win, especially for Colorado, who I'm looking through their first round picks in other years, like since actually entering the NHL. So they got their goalie, Mark Denis, in their first draft. And then these are the other guys that weren't Alex Tongay in their first several years in the league. Peter Ratchuk, Kevin Grimes, Mikhail Kuleshov, Vla Vatslav Nederos, I guess, and then... Peter Budai and Jonas Johansson, Dave Liffeton. Like I'm going until I find someone who Wojtek Wolski, I guess, was decent. Um, Chris Stewart. I, it took them until 2007. Their first draft was 95, but it took them to till 2007 when they drafted Kevin Shattenkirk and then promptly traded him uh, to the Blues for. That
0: was oh, the Eric Johnson trade.
1: That was the Eric Johnson trade. That's it. So um, really awful. Drafting history outside of this one bright spot in Alex Tangate at 12, which is a fantastic grab. The Fs had four first-round picks this year.
0: Yeah, and Colorado, they did most of their work building that team during their time in Quebec and then with some later-round draft picks. And certainly, they, they probably never get over the hump without that trade for Patrick Waugh. Oh, so, of course not. So thank goodness the Canadians about to dry in that one game
1: <laughs> mario tremblay will always be remembered as the, the benedict arnold of montreal i don't even really know who benedict arnold is but i've seen him referenced in archie comics i think i think the analogy holds
0: you're in the clear so number 13 the edmonton oilers in a run of of terrible drafting to end <laughs> the 90s take michael Henrik, who never plays an nhl game this is not a great year for the OHL in this draft. We talked about Legwand and Allen and Fata and Malhotra and Rupp. And now Henrik's in here. And we should probably talk about something funky going on with the Barry Colts, who are an expansion franchise in, in the mid-90s. And they end up with a bunch of high picks coming off their team, and none of them turn out. So we talked about Kachuk who is their team captain at 17 and he goes number six in 97 and he doesn't end up making it. Alexander Volchkov goes number four in 1996, which again, terrible draft. He, He doesn't pan out. Henrik and then Martin Skula goes to Colorado at 17. And then in 99, we talked about it on that pod and Brian Finley goes to the Preds at number six. He doesn't end up panning out as well as Dennis Schvidke, who's a number 12 overall pick. And he doesn't go either. And those teams were really good, too. Like, they lost in the men Cup final in 2000. But just for whatever reason, they're cooking up some, some of the worst draft picks ever. And I've got no idea what's going on there.
1: That is an, a story, I think, Steve, that needs to be told. Why Barry was producing these apparently great players who had great junior careers, including on the world stage... And they all fizzled in the NHL, and no one saw it coming. They were all getting drafted in high rounds. I think uh, I would listen to that podcast if you made it.
0: Okay, maybe I'll dig a little bit deeper. And episode like seventy-seven of the Steve LeBlanc nice. pod will be will be the mid-nineties Barry Colts. <laughs>
1: Every I, I'm sure everyone is just itching. Uh, to hear I the only like I'm going to just share one random working theory is that their head coach was Burt Templeton who if I'm not mistaken the name strikes me as somebody who did coach team the world junior team at some point so maybe he was giving Barry Colts players preferable treatment at the world juniors or I'm entirely wrong and he never coached the world junior team this is what happens when you don't research every single angle before going on air
0: yeah, I don't want to speak out of turn, but I remember reading about those Barry Colts teams. And I believe Templeton gets fired sometime in the middle of that that run for them. And I can't remember exactly why, but it was it was some kind of off-ice scandal or something like that. So okay. you 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 may be on the right track.
1: He uh I, I'm finding it now. He coached the world juniors in 1977 and 1987. So uh too far before these guys.
0: <laughs> He wasn't running the pipeline unless he was playing <laughs> playing kids in diapers.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, that's a, there goes that theory.
0: Okay, so at number 14, Phoenix takes Patrick Derroche, who, I don't know, he's he's a goalie and he doesn't work out. So maybe don't take goalies in, in the first round. And speaking of which, at number 15, Ottawa takes Matthew Chouinard and... They like him so much that when they can't sign him, he re-enters the 2000 draft. And then the the compensatory second that they get for him not signing, they use that pick on him again. They're like, nah, you're not getting away from us. And you got to respect the determination (laughs) from the Sens. Uh, Schuynard plays one game. He makes two saves. He never lets in a goal, but he's also out of hockey by the lockout. So maybe don't take goalies in the first round
1: the matthew schwinard story lives on in ottawa senators lore and like very much encapsulates the way that ottawa felt they had to be like so desperate so thirsty that they draft a guy he rebuffs in 1998 in the first round he rebuffs them and I was like, sorry, uh, this isn't going to work. They couldn't come to terms on a contract. I'm like, fine, you go back into the draft because we're just going to pick you again in 2000 with another reasonably high pick. Uh, so it's madness. It's funny. Uh, and there is more of a story behind this, although it's not as tantalizing as you might think. They just, they, they felt like they didn't have enough time to come to terms with him. They felt like they could make it work and uh, they couldn't. So uh, too bad for... Matthew Schwinnard and the Ottawa Senators for not making that work. Interestingly enough, the guy who went before, the guys who went before and after the Sens drafted Schwinnard for the second time, Ilya Bryzgalov went before, Jared Saul went after. So he's sandwiched between two legit career NHLers. And uh, and then I also want to point out, you mentioned maybe don't draft goalies in the first round. I feel like you shouldn't draft goalies in any round, at least in 1998, there were like, I, di- I didn't count, but there were like 15 or 20 drafted. None of them had meaningful careers. The one that came closest was Andrew Raycroft. Uh, so he had a meaningful year. I wouldn't say he had a meaningful career. Uh, and then Ontario Mackey is your next best guy. And then Jason LaBarbera is the only other player who has any sort of reasonable NHL resume from the goalie crop that year. So I don't know if it was goalie scouting that was bad or goalie. I I don't know what the deal was, but goalies were bad as always. Yeah,
0: yeah, Brian, I was going to say you're slagging on my guy, Jason LaBarbera, but
1: (laughs) what do you like about Jay? He played for your Oilers at some point, didn't he?
0: Absolutely. He did. So uh, you, you mentioned a few guys from, like, there's some great candidates for the all-name team coming out of this draft. You mentioned LaBarbara. Carlos Skrassench is in this draft. It's a really we mentioned, good name. We mentioned Rico Fada. We mentioned Jonathan Chichu. There's some Milan Kraft in here. Ramsey yeah. Abid. Ossie Vaninen.
1: Don't forget Vitali Vishnevsky, who we've also mentioned. I'm glad you're bringing this up because I actually, in preparing for the show... I went through the list of the, the, all the players drafted to pick the best names. Can I, is now, I was going to save it for the end, but can I share the others that I found?
0: Yeah. Are there any that I didn't touch on?
1: Yes. Uh, Sergey Scrobot was drafted by Philadelphia, 205th to the eighth overall, no NHL games played. Oak Hewer drafted by Tampa in the seventh round, no games played. Vince Maltz. Uh, drafted by Vancouver in the seventh round, no games. Anton but with just one T, drafted in the fifth round by New Jersey, no games played. Peter Svoboda, drafted by Toronto in the second round, but not that Peter Svoboda, not the one that had a good career with Montreal, uh, just another guy who played just 18 games. And then Jesse Fibiger and Yuri DePita were my other name picks, but I really like Oak Hewer a lot.
0: Yeah, I was in it for the Scrobot guy. You you, you had me at Scrobot.
1: <laughs> Should have saved him for last. <laughs>
0: okay, uh, so some other players uh, of uh, of real meaningful value drafted. Simone Gagné and Scott Gomez are our first rounders. Brian Gianta, Brad Richards, Mike Fisher, Francois Beauchemin, Eric Cole, Michael Ryder, Mike Ribeiro, Sean Horkoff, Robin Revere, Andrew Rakoff. Michael Samuelson like there's there's some good options in this draft when we do our redraft so the first round didn't go so hot for teams but they certainly made up for it with with some of the later picks
1: so Brian
0: let's do our redraft and I want you to take the number one pick
1: okay I would love to and I'm very curious to see how different our redraft is from the original, not just in the order we go, but in the makeup of the players that were taken, because uh, you mentioned all the guys who were from the OHL. I was just counting 19 of the first 22 picks this year were from the CHL, mostly OHL. The other three were from Russia. Uh, So no Americans drafted until Scott Gomez was picked towards the end of the first round. And he's Alaskan, which is like barely America, right? So uh, anyway, I, I'm well, curious. He's if also you...
0: playing in the WHL, is he not?
1: Yeah, he is. For an American team in the WHL, I can't, is it, I can't remember. It's probably which one.
0: Portland, but I, I don't recall either.
1: Well, we can look it up when, if and when we redraft him. Uh, but in my redraft, I am taking uh, a player with generational hands, generational talent, whose name was not in the first round, not in the second round. And not in any round until we get all the way down to the sixth round, 171st overall. Detroit picked the best player in the 1998 draft in drafting Pavel Datsuk.
0: Yeah, the Magic Man. Datsuk was—he wasn't the guy that you would build in the lab. That—that that was Le Cavalier. But Datsuk was the guy in the action movie who beats the guy that you built in the lab so (laughs)
1: tell
0: tell me a little bit more like I had Datsuk at at the top as well he he's one of the 100 greatest players of all time so so tell me a little bit more about why you took him
1: well he had the best points per game by like a fair margin he had uh, a 0.96 points per game over the course of his career the next highest was Brad Richards uh spoiler alert who's going to be in the redraft too at uh, a 0.83 points per game everybody else had less than 0.8 points per game. So Datsuk just head and shoulders above his draft class. And not just his draft class, but like ahead of his entire era, uh, only 15 players have played more than 500 games since 96, 97, which is five years before Datsuk even entered the league and had a point piece that was equal to or better than Datsuk. So top 15 of his era... Make it 900 games played that you need to be like so good for so long over. Only 11 players are on the list uh, who had a point p- per game pace that was either Datsuks or higher. Um, and like you, the other names you'll find there Ovechkin, Yager, Solani, Crosby, Sundin, Stamkos, Malkin, Sackett, Korea, Ziggy, Palfi somehow gets on there. He was better than a lot of people remember though. Eric Lindros, Peter Forsberg. I mean, Pavel Datsuk, if you ask a lot of people, it's like I'm not making the case that he belongs with these guys because I think a lot of people might already say, well, he's actually better than them anyway. Um, but I just want to like, really hammer home the point here that he was absolutely head and shoulders above the rest of this draft class and, like you said, a top 100 player in NHL history. Uh, not only was he amongst the best scorers in his draft class, but also amongst the best setup men in his draft class and no one else in this draft class can say that or really a whole lot of draft classes. So yeah, Pavel Datsuk, uh, goes number one to Tampa. Mm-hmm. I guess, I guess it doesn't really matter to what team.
0: Oh no, it, it matters. Tampa oh, okay. Bay. They, they get him number one. So he's a three-time Selkie winner and he gets heart votes six times. And you almost can argue that maybe he should have won the heart, at least one time he never puts up quite the same counting stats but once we start tracking courses and that sort of stuff he's got a nine-year run where he's never below 55.8 percent shot share and that includes three seasons where he's above 60 percent so he's tilting the ice like no one of that era did he's so dominant and it just so happens that he shares time with, with some of the best guys to come along in generations like Ovechkin and Malkin and Crosby who, who basically bat around that Hart Trophy for much of Datsuk's prime. So maybe he misses out on it, but certainly he, he makes up for it with, with the Selkies. And I just want to ask you one question, Brian. Would you rather play keep away from a dozen tigers or one Datsuk? Uh,
1: A dozen tigers. I feel like there's a Tiger King joke to be made here for sure, but I can't find it.
0: Right. So that puts me up (laughs) at number two for the Nashville Predators. And I'm going to take that big number one centerman that they've been looking for for really their entire franchise history. I'm going to take Vincent LeCavalier.
1: Okay. I mean, there was another centerman out there who wasn't as big, uh, wasn't throwing as many hits or getting into as many fights, was listed under 200 pounds. This is Brad Richards I'm talking about. Uh, Also four inches shorter than Vinny LeCavalier. So I guess if you're drafting for size, you go LeCavalier. I don't know if I can, like, when do I disagree with you here? Do I I should let you make your case a little bit further. Try and convince me, because I at first agreed with you, but as I got closer to recording this with you, I kind of flipped. But tell me why Le Cavalier over who I think should be here.
0: Well, I can see the case for Brad Richards, especially when you consider that Richards passes Le Cavalier on that 4 cup winning team and is the number one center and and wins the Conn Smythe. But the best player on that team wasn't either of the centermen. It was Martin St. Louis. And we can talk about how St. Louis arguably makes those guys extra millions of dollars and really is the reason that they have such more impressive legacies, which is not to say that they aren't awesome players. The thing for me is that LeCavalier, he, he didn't tap into it for very long. But when he did, he was a whole extra gear, a whole extra level above Richards. Yeah. And there, there's a couple of different times when LeCavalier hits the absolute pinnacle. So they win the cup. And I mean, despite the fact that he was relegated to, to the number two centerman on that team, he then goes to the world cup during the lockout year and he wins mvp of that tournament and, and the gold medal with canada so that that's pretty big it's it's a short tournament but he on the world stage on a year when there's nothing else going on he's cup champion world cup champion mvp and then his two year run from 2006 07 and 07 08 is like, it's up there with just about anyone. He's getting heart votes both years, second-team all-star the one year. He gets the Richard Trophy with 52 goals and 108 points. He's also got a 40-goal, 92-point season in there. And then he's got a bunch of other pretty good seasons. But that, that peak really puts him up there among some of the best. And while, you know, he's not the Michael Jordan of hockey, he certainly – he hit – just about the highest level.
1: That's fair. Like that peak for LeCavalier was, I think, higher than any of Brad from Brad Richards's peak. Um, LeCavalier was also like taking over 300 shots for a few years. Uh, so, like, he had that going for him. And, like you said, those two years where he had 200 points and 92 goals uh, over the two seasons was incredible. And Brad Richards didn't put anything together like that. But I do take issue with you saying they both like were riding Marty St. Louis because Brad Richards headed on over to Dallas and had a 91 point season his second year there was on pace to do it in his third year in Dallas as well, uh, but didn't play the full season. Just played a uh, missed ten games, uh, but he went to Dallas and he. I feel like that's where he really made his name because there were a lot of. People who oh, yeah, he plays with Le Cavalier. He plays with Marty St. Louis. Let's put him in let, – let's take him away from those guys and see what happens. And he just destroyed. I think a lot of people forget how good he was in Dallas. And then by the time he went to the Rangers as that big marquee name uh, that everyone was like, oh, okay, let's see what he does in New York now. He's already 31, 32 years old, and that's where his career starts going down. But Le Cavalier's career started a lot slower and ended a lot sooner in terms of being an elite producer compared to Brad Richards, who right out of the gates, although Richards was two years older than Le Cavalier in his rookie seasons, right out of the gate, 62 points as a rookie for Richards and played all the way up, was, had 51 points as a 33-year-old. Uh, when Le Cavalier was a 33-year-old, he was pacing for just over 40, which isn't a big difference, but it was also, it's not the only time where their, their career trajectory, like if you, look at, if you looked at their trajectories as a picture, the Cavaliers would be like a slow climb and then this big spike in the middle, like a huge spike, bigger, higher than anything Richards has. And then another precipitous fall, whereas Richards would be like, like start up pretty high, go a little higher, hold high, and then dip down slowly again.
0: So I think you just compared Richards to the flat curve.
1: Yeah, yeah. Richards is Le Cavalier's curve uh, being flattened. Exactly. And that's what we all want right now. So I don't know why you didn't take him ahead of Le Cavalier.
0: Well, I, I suppose Nashville's loss is San Jose's game because uh, you're taking Richards uh, at number three, I take it?
1: Oh, yeah, for sure.
0: Yeah. And we should probably ask the question, who in the hell was scouting that Ramuski team with Le Cavalier on it? And just not noticing the other guy on that team, absolutely tearing the league to shreds. Richards falls to the third round, but he fires up 115 points in 68 games to tie Cavalier for the team lead in scoring. And and to be fair, we mentioned Ramsey Abed; he leads that league in scoring with 135 points, and he doesn't end up turning into anything. So
1: hmm.
0: maybe maybe some people were concerned about empty calories in the queue that year but certainly Richards he he plays a huge role on a lot of teams that were very relevant you know you mentioned his year in Dallas or his years in Dallas and he has he has some good scoring years there but they only make the playoffs the one time that he's a rental but they also make a huge splash going to the conference finals that year and then he also goes to the conference finals with the Rangers and he closes out his career with a cup in Chicago. So he was heavily involved. And both he and LeCavalier end up being big-time buyout guys who are going to be making big bucks from, from teams that bought them out.
1: I, uh, I was just looking at these Dallas teams that uh, Richards was crushing it on. And, like, who was he playing with? Uh, Louis Erickson, James Neal, Mike Ribeiro, uh, Brendan Morrow, and a very young Jamie Ben. Is like, so like, like, no one even phenomenal. He didn't, he, he, Brad Richards was amazing. I am like, I'm falling more in love with Brad Richards. And also, I really liked how, uh, you mentioned like who, who was scout, who was watching these Ramouski games and not noticing Brad Richards, which brought me to the Ramuski Oceanic, um, team page for 97, 98. They had a defenseman named Derek Walser out of New Glasgow, Nova Scotia who had 110 points, third in the team. Like, Richards had 115. LeCavalier had 115. Walser had 110 points as a defenseman, um, including 36 points in 10 playoff games. And when undrafted, I'll, I'll let you guess, Steve, how tall do you think he was?
0: He was probably, like, five foot five, but I think he was also a 20-year-old that year.
1: Yeah, well... He was five ten, and maybe he was older. I can't do. Yeah, he was nineteen or twenty, but still, give the guy a chance. And he actually had a pretty healthy AHL career, where he produced in the AHL, the ECHL, the German league. It's unfortunate he never. Uh, he got ninety one NHL games in twenty nine points. I'm sure not a lot of opportunity. They all came with came with Columbus. But uh, there's always guys when I go back to drafts like this and look at it and it's just like okay, he was 5'10, 195. Someone give the guy a chance. But I guess in a draft where like Brian Allen and Vitaly Vishnevsky and Brad Stewart are going top five, no one's looking for a Derek Walzer.
0: No. And certainly 91 games is is more than I would have guessed that he had. So yeah, true. Good good for Derek. Yeah. I'm not going to argue with you on, on Richards at at three. Certainly there's a case to be made that he he could go number two, but I, I prefer the peak of Le Cavalier to to the steady flat curve of 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 Richards so it's i'm up beautiful. at number 4 for Vancouver and i'm going to take Andre Markov who who just announced his retirement
1: I was so ready to come in here and be like the biggest Andre Markov hipster and fanboy and just be like, well, y'all don't know how good Andre Markov was and how great and brilliant a pick this was uh, by you to put him at fourth in your redraft. And then of course he retires the day before we do this and all, all the swan songs and beautiful pieces about how great a person and player and whatever he was are coming out. So I don't sound cool or unique at all anymore, but I will still sing Markov's praises To the ceiling i love this pick for you steve at fourth overall and i guess the the interesting part is who's going to come after right how much did we prioritize this defenseman there was a case honestly for markov to be number two just based on how long and fantastic a career he had and i wish he made that there was that rumored comeback not that long ago right where he said like hey i'll play for montreal if they want me and uh unfortunately it didn't happen he played just ten games shy of a thousand NHL games, 572 points along the way over 16 years, all with Montreal. And I'm going to do a little Datsuk retrospective about Markov, um, where I mention how he was a player that stood out in his era. There are only 28 defensemen who, in their careers since the early 90s lockout, played 500 games and matched or exceeded Markov's point pace. So he had the 28th highest point pace uh, from regular defensemen, and you up the game's played requirement and say, okay, fine, you need to be better for even longer. You need to have played 900 games since the early 90s and have Markov's point pace. There are only 10 defensemen above Markov over the last 25 years. Um, and their names are Nikolodstrom, Sergei Gonchar, Shea Weber, Chris Pronger, Niedermeyer Zuboff. So, like, this is elite company for a defenseman who no one – I feel has ever really considered elite. He had some really elite fantasy seasons and he was a great player that you could sneak later in your drafts. Cause it felt like nobody knew who this guy ever was. And the best part was that he kept doing this into the twilight of his career. He matched his career point pace over his last five seasons in the league where he was aged 34 to 38. Uh, Markov ranks 12th all time in points scored by a defenseman age 34 or older but a lot of those guys on that list ahead of him were racking up points in the 80s and 90s so it's not really fair so you fast forward to be on the second lockout Markov ranks fourth amongst peers in his era in total points scored by a defenseman age 34 or older so behind only Lidstrom Mark Streit another guy who doesn't get his uh, get get the credit he deserves for his offense, and Brian Rafalski, so uh, Andrei Markov was this elite defenseman who was not also like maligned for these deficiencies on the back end either. He was not always the steadiest defensive player, but he was still good enough that his defensive, whatever lapses there were, did not come close to overshadowing his, his offensive skill, which was just there in spades and very rare in this draft uh if i'm gonna keep blabbing on and then i'll i'll let you talk again steve i promise it's your podcast but markov played 900 nhl games right 990 there were the only others in this draft to play more than three or four seasons worth of hockey the only defensemen were Sco- rob scuderi Jaroslav Spacek, carlos skrastins kent huskins francois Boschman the aforementioned O.C. Vannanen with the great name John Erskine, Robin Regeer, Dimitri Kalanen, Martin Skula, Vitaly Vishnevsky, Brian Allen, and Brad Stewart. None of those guys, none of them stand out as anyone who had any kind of offensive talent or creative flair. The next most points was Spachek at 355 points, over 200 points fewer than Markov. And for a defenseman, that's like at least four seasons worth of work. So... Andre Markov unlike any defenseman in his draft class and I will I'll give him the dad suck treatment unlike any defenseman or unlike many other defensemen in his era there are a few like him but uh he was amazing I love Andre Markov
0: yeah I don't think he quite makes the cut as a hall of famer but certainly he gets Norris votes six times and he was an anchor for really those Habs teams that Always seem to punch above their weight, just just hanging in there with shot blocking and goaltending and that rope-a-dope defensive style, and then a rock-solid power play, either quarterbacked by Markov or or Mark Strait. and those teams always, you know, they carved out a couple of conference finals, and and Markov maybe he maybe he pushes enough to sneak into to Hall of Fame candidacy if he doesn't lose two and a half years to those torn ACLs like it happens twice in a row and he loses yeah. a, ton, a a ton of really late prime years for him and you mentioned it he bounces back and is completely fine afterwards and for me that was that was a real sea change in the way that I look at major injuries like that because at the time I was writing like he, as soon as he tore it the second time I was like you'll never be able to rely on this guy again yeah. like he's cooked and then you could which was amazing and and it really shows how far sports medicine has come that he was able to do that so in such quick succession and then be able to bounce back and be right back at near the peak of his powers so yeah, yeah. that just
1: adds to the legend that he, he missed. I, I want to repeat just right. He missed two and a half seasons, age 31 to 33, and then came back as a 34-year-old, played as well offensively as he ever had in the prime of his career for five more years and then played three more in the KHL.
0: Yeah, so I think, I think the top four was never going to be any different than, than what it was. Maybe you could quibble on the order. But it was always going to be those four guys. They really stood out in this 98 draft class. So I'm really interested to see what direction you go in at number five for the Anaheim Ducks, Brian.
1: Well, this is one where it's a very what-if kind of pick. And, like, I could try and be, okay, I didn't get to be a super hockey hipster about Markov, but there is another guy I could name right now who I could, I think, get the similar, like, oh, wow, nice, nice pick. Uh, But I'm not going to go for him um, because it it is too much of a what if. And I'll leave the name a a mystery. You can – I don't know if you'll take him next or not. Um, But I'm going to go with the known entity in Alex Tongay, the one great draft pick that Colorado ever had in Colorado for the first 12 years of their existence. Uh, He was just a key cog of those teams that had Patrick Waugh still – if my memory serves backstopping them with chris drury they made a, a fantastic duo up front and uh, he was a uh, one thing i a lot of people might not remember about alex tangay is that he wasn't a big shooter like not once in his career did he take more than 142 shots he had double digit shot totals in several seasons of his career although he missed time in a lot of those but still he wasn't pacing for more than 150 but he converted in his career, on almost 20% of his shots. And in his prime days, he was converting on over 20% of his shots on a, in a reliable way. So uh, he was a lethal shooter when he decided to shoot the puck and not set up someone like Chris Drury.
0: Yeah, no one ever passed the puck into the net better than Alex Tange. <laughs> and, and you are correct, Brian. He, he was on that All- one championship team. With, uh, with Drury and, and Patrick Waugh. So a cup champion. He made the conference finals a couple other times and definitely a, a very solid pick. He, he was a good pro for a very long time. That brings me up at number six for the Calgary Flames. And I had him ahead of Tangay, but I, I can understand where you would quibble. I'm taking Simone Gagné.
1: Yeah, that, that was my hit pick. You took the wind right out of my sails twice. Uh, I don't know if that means you're the smarter drafter than me, though. But Simone Gagne was fantastic. And the reason I wanted to put it – the reason I kept calling him a what-if guy is because he was only the player – I think he only fully reached his potential two seasons in the NHL. And what he had in common those seasons is that well, what, he took the two highest shot totals of his career – and he scored more than 40 goals in each of those years. These were his age 25, 26 seasons coming out of the 00405 4 5 lockout. Uh, and the guy was on fire. Now, there were other seasons where without the goal scoring, he still picked up enough assists to be, uh, you know, a 70-point player. But uh, he never really was able to reach those heights without taking the same number of shots. And I believe injuries were a huge factor. For him, if I remember, I don't know if it was a wrist or a hand or an arm. For some reason, wrist strikes sticks out to me, and maybe you can help fill in that blank, Steve. But he was a guy who always, you could see the potential, like anytime he had the puck on his stick, if he shot it, there was a great chance that it would go in, and you just wanted to see him have the chance to do it more.
0: Yes, certainly injuries were a factor for Gagne, and he's another guy like Le Cavalier where... You know, it, it's all about the peak for me. He was so fantastic in the, in those couple of years coming out of the lockout with with the 40-goal seasons. But I've got real fond memories of Gagne on the O2 Olympic team, and then he works his way up to the top line with Joe Sackick and Jerome McGinley, and that's, that's a huge bounce back for Canada in, in those Olympics. And... Iserman also had really fond memories of Gagne on that Olympic team, so much so that when Iserman becomes the GM of the Lightning in 2010, he makes a point of Gagne is the first player that he trades for. And that team ultimately makes it to the conference finals in 2011 and loses to the Stanley Cup champion, Boston. He's got some big moments in that conference finals with with Tampa Bay he also scores the OT winner in game 4 of the first round against Boston when he's with the Flyers and, and that starts off the 03 comeback that uh, carries the Flyers to the cup final so he scored some really big goals and was involved in some really big moments and he's a guy that I'm always going to remember from that era
1: for sure like there there are those there's posterable moments from Simone Gagne that we remember for team Canada and for Philly and for Tampa. like there were moments and you just wish that those moments were more present throughout his entire career. And I think a lot of it just was opportunity. I, I don't think it was skill that was missing.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Just, just couldn't stay in the lineup long enough. So you're up at number seven, New York Rangers. Are you going to play this kid six minutes a night?
1: No, I'm not, but I am going to take him seventh overall here. Former Ottawa Senator Anchorage's own Scott Gomez uh, is just like old man time over here, right? Uh, Of course, when the Calder named, like I remember when he won the Calder, I swear I barely knew his name until he won it. It was just like, who is this guy? And I, oh no, I remember because he beat out Marty Havlat for the Calder Trophy his season, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, and uh, I was really bummed about it. And I remember watching Gomez play for New Jersey and being like, well, how how was this guy better than Martin Havlade of my Ottawa Senators? Uh, but it was nice to see uh, Gomez being like the one American drafted and winning the Calder. By the way, he was the second American in a row to win the Calder. Came, in, came after Chris Drury won it. So Gomez just had this long career where he was – uh, he had some seasons where he was like a big producer. And then he found this new role for himself towards the end of his career where he played for Montreal and, well, Ottawa at the very end, but a couple other teams in between where he was just like a steady sort of, he wasn't really a face-off guy, but sort of a steady two-way guy that you'd throw out there as a good bottom six option. And, and I just like that he sort of still found a way to reinvent himself and keep himself relevant when he did lose that scoring touch that he had for the first half of his career.
0: Yeah, I had Gomez in this spot as well. And certainly he he eventually makes his way to the Rangers, although they, they end up giving him a lot more money. To think, yeah. So, <laughs> so they're, they're very thankful for the discount on his first few years in the year. And I think both of your picks in Tangay and Gomez, they come in, they they only do a a year more of junior after this draft and then they go into the NHL and they're instant impact guys on, you know, the most competitive teams of that era in Colorado and New Jersey. And you do wonder if these guys end up going to Anaheim and New York, the way they did in this redraft, do they have the same success or do they get rushed along and, and maybe it doesn't work out quite as well for them? Like, it certainly speaks to their talents that they stuck around as long as they did and that they were instant impact guys. But I also wonder if it doesn't also speak to the situations that they landed themselves in.
1: Totally. I mean, you, you look at the way that careers could have been different and changed. Development is such a huge part, I think, especially. You, you saw Detroit doing it better, drafting and developing patiently better than anyone to the point that Jim Neal and Mike Babcock still have this reputation. Like, they're still living on this reputation that they had as front management who know how to develop young talent and I, I I don't know if that's still truly the case anymore I imagine that skill set changes every five or ten years and you can't just be someone the rare person is great at it for a two or three decade stretch um but you're absolutely right I also by the way need to check myself Martin havlett was a rookie the following year after Gomez so I think I was watching havlett being oh he's better than Gomez he'll he'll get the culture he didn't he finished third behind uh, Nabokov and Brad Richards
0: Right, but if I'm not mistaken, he does play some games in that 99-2000 season.
1: Yes, yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, no, I don't see any. Oh, well, yeah. fair enough. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm.
0: Miss misremembering. So at number oh, yeah. eight, I'm up for the Chicago Blackhawks, and I'm going to take Francois Beauchemin.
1: Okay, so you're bumping like all the defensemen that I just threw shade at. I mean, like, no one else was good and worth drafting here. You're going ahead and taking Boschman, who I guess is like this sort of toolsy player who is a big body, can play that 90s-style defense, but also, when given the opportunity, has some points in his pocket too.
0: Yeah, he has such a weird career. So he's drafted... 75th overall in this draft by Montreal. But he only ever gets into one game for them because he's stuck behind Mike Komasarek and Ron Hainsey, who were both first-rounders for them. And he eventually ends up getting claimed off waivers by Columbus. And then he finally makes it full-time to the league after the lockout. So he's in the league in 05-06. And this is when Brian Burke figures out that Fedorov is not going to be a good influence on Ryan Getzlaff and Corey Perry. So he's got to get Fedorov the heck out of Anaheim. And Boschman is the guy who comes back in that trade. And he lands on Scott Niedermeyer's pairing as a 25-year-old rookie. So he's immediately playing 24 minutes a night for one of the league's best teams. And there couldn't be a better situation for him. He ends up winning the cup the next year, bounces around a bit, comes back to Anaheim two other times, which includes the the lockout-shortened 2013 season, where he's he's the only guy left. He's their number one defenseman, and he's getting heart votes. He finished mm-hmm. fourth in the Norris voting that year and makes second team All Star. So he's one of the four best defensemen in the league that year, and it wasn't totally ridiculous although by that point he, he's just coming off of going to Toronto and, like, people hate him for his time there. It takes him eight years from this draft to finally make the league, but he still has a 13-year career of playing 20-plus minutes a night. There weren't very many good defensemen in this draft, and he was one.
1: Yeah, I'm trying to – I'm just looking up now. What was he doing in those – 8 years, you know, between being drafted. I guess he was in the AHL uh yeah, a turn in the AHL. Yeah, and like he wasn't even really he's essentially putting up his NHL numbers in the AHL, which is not good, right? Those are like 25 30 point seasons, except for that one season where he did get Norris consideration and was a half point per game player. Um so it, it's a very I you know, he's a guy who would be really fun to talk to and be like, what happened? Like why? Why did it take you so long to play after being drafted? And then, like, how did you make yourself an NHLer when it doesn't really seem like he ever changed his game, even going back to his junior days?
0: No, I think I think Montreal was just a little bit too saturated with prospects, so he never gets that opportunity in their system, and it probably takes him a while to really turn into a, a legitimate pro. And then, of course, he finds himself in Columbus. And this is at a time when they don't really know what they're doing. So, And then he gets thrown into that Fedorov trade. And and the the question for me would be, did Anaheim really have their eyes on him? Or was it just, we'll take whatever you're throwing at us? And they ended up getting a steal.
1: Yeah, and I'm sure Brian Burke will take all the credit for, for making that happen.
0: Okay, so at number nine for the New York Islanders, Channel your inner Mike Milbury, and let's see what you can cook up for them.
1: I'm going to draft Sergei Skrobot. Uh, no, just kidding. Mike Milbury would never draft a Russian, so uh, that wouldn't happen. Uh, oq please. No, okay. Uh, I, well, here's where we get to a, po- a point in the draft where things really sort of flatten. There's probably five or six guys who could all, you can make an argument all belong here. Uh, we talked about goalies. I, like, There's no goalies worthwhile. So I don't know. I'm in a spot where I, I, am not gonna, I, is it a spoiler if I name all the guys I'm thinking about and like explain what I like and don't like about them? Well, why don't
0: you, you fire off your list of guys you're considering and we'll kind of unpack it.
1: Okay. So I've got uh, Jonathan Chichu, former Ottawa Senator, Michael Ryder, Eric Cole, and Nick Antropov as this group that, and maybe David Legwan sneaks in there. I think Mike Fisher is only sort of on the fringe of that group because I watched him so much in Ottawa and I have that like personal exposure that like things I appreciate about his game that don't show up in the score sheet the way that, um, you know, where these other guys, I'm essentially judging by their score sheets and the games they played against Ottawa. Uh, So I guess Chichu, the argument against Chichu, and it might not be fair, but he didn't really ever get to do much away from Joe Thornton. So, you know, you. I just don't know that I can trust that. Is is that a fair assessment of him?
0: Yeah. There's two guys in this draft class who have basically one season that stands out that is completely unlike anything they did at any other time in their career. And a lot of it I think is entirely post-lockout. We're calling a crap load of penalties related and that's Brian Gianta and Jonathan Chichu. Gianta has a 48 goal, I think he's close to 90-point season, and never does anything remotely close to that ever again. And, and same thing for Chichu. And if you don't have Joe Thornton on your team, which uh, I'm looking at the Islanders' lineup, and he's not there. So without him, I, I don't think there's any way you can justify a Chichu pick. I think there's some other guys on that list who – played on some teams that had real impact over the last 15 or so years and were involved in some big moments and i think that you would do well to to pick some uh, someone else from that
1: yeah so i and actually one guy that i totally skipped over and it's like half intentional because i he gotten into all kinds of trouble for alleged sexual assault and uh physical assault and he's had his you know, noted problems it's alcohol and drugs, which I, of course, don't begrudge him. I'm talking about Mike Ribeiro, um, who had, you know, who is probably the best player remaining, who hasn't been drafted. Um, he's sort of this figure where it seems like he's had all these, these issues that I just named where are unforgivable, and then towards the end of his career, it's like, I'm working on it, I swear. Like, I remember reading press pieces about it. And then, I mean, it was never resolved. Not that I... It's tricky for me. Like this always comes up with me in fantasy too. It's like, do I want a player whose life seems bad on my fantasy team? Can I handle that? So, like, can I draft? Can I redraft this person? Ribeiro probably deserves to go here just based on his skill. He had more good seasons than any of the guys that I just named. He was was on those Dallas teams with Mike Richards, and then uh, he bounced around a bunch because of these personal issues and legal. Uh, allegations. So I guess I'll just say him uh, and then let you pick from the pile of the other guys. So I really uh, zigged and then zagged there.
0: So you're taking Mike Ribeiro for the Islanders. Yeah. That's what you're saying. Okay. Yeah. Based on talent alone, you can certainly justify that pick and you would hope that you, Brian Calm, are, are running this franchise and you're really setting the culture of the organization and everything's trickling down from there. And you create an environment where even if Ribeiro is, you know, he's having issues off the ice, he's struggling with substance abuse and that sort of thing where it's a good enough culture where you can help course correct for him. And maybe he has an even better career than what we saw from him in reality. So I don't hate the pick. He certainly had enough talent to be worthy of a redraft here in the 98 redraft. But again, yeah, you reference those questions and it's hard to make that pick. I'm up at number 10 here, picking for the Toronto Maple Leafs. And they took Antropov and he plays fairly quickly for them. I think he might even make the leap right away. They sign Cujo this summer and that turns them into an immediate playoff team. So this is a weird situation where I'm picking for a lottery team, but I'm thinking about taking something, you know, making a pick for need, which is not something I usually advocate for, but this is a team that Dimitri Yuskevich and Danny Markov are playing huge minutes mm-hmm. for them. And they end up trading for Brian Burrard this season and young Thomas caberlet is, is in the mix. And I feel like another defenseman who could help them out is Yarospochek, who's, yeah. I think he's already 24 when he gets drafted this season. And he immediately steps into the NHL and plays 20 minutes a night for Florida. And he bounces around a bunch, but he has like a 10 year career of playing 20 plus minutes a night and I have some fond memories of him playing on that Oilers Cup finalist team, right. and he goes to the conference finals with Such the Sabers the pick. following year. But he's good.
1: Yeah. Like, no, there, there is. Were... There's... Sorry, there's a like there's a few forty point seasons in there too, and and you had your eyes on him more than I did. The only reason I I haven't picked him yet is because I, I'm not I wasn't convinced or very aware of his defensive acumen, but you you saw it.
0: Yeah, he he was solid. Like he's he's a bit of a. I think he would have been appreciated in 2020 a lot more than he was back in the early two thousands because he he was the type of guy who could help tilt the ice for you while not doing anything like overly spectacular. Like he, he was the defenseman who you didn't notice. And that was a good thing.
1: Right. Right. So, and you know what, there you go. That's why I didn't notice him because he was just never screwing up. So uh, yeah, I I can get with you, but I guess I'm sort of just mad and annoyed because I'm still back at this pile of players that I mentioned two picks ago that I thought you were going to help me sort out. Uh, So a lot of help you were. Uh, (laughs) And I guess, well, we've already talked about them. You know, so uh, this pile again is Chichu, Michael Ryder, whose middle names, by the way, are Glenn Wayne, I learned while researching, Michael Glenn Wayne Ryder. Eric Cole, who like Ryder and Cole were like clones of each other, weren't they? Were they traded for each other at least? They once were
0: in fact traded for each other. I think that's uh, some Dallas is involved there.
1: Yeah, they were they were they were very they they always seem very similar. They always seem to follow the same trajectory. Um the the one who I'm most interested in, to be honest, is Nick Antropov. Because okay. I, I saw enough of these Toronto teams playing against Ottawa and also just every Saturday night that it felt like he was never what they wanted him to be, but what he actually was was probably really good. If they had just let him play his game, which they never really seemed to do case in point. Uh, he finally gets out of Toronto. Uh, he's traded to the New York Rangers at the deadline uh, after, I don't know, uh, almost nine years in Toronto trade to the Rangers at the deadline Uh, 13 points in 18 games once he's there, which puts him on pace for 60 points, which would be a career high. And then the next season he goes to Atlanta as a 29-year-old, 67 points in 76 games, which is a career high. And uh, yes, he had a career high shooting percentage that year too, but he also had a career high in assists. So I just feel like Andropov was being told to play a certain way and could never really blossom and flourish into whatever offensive player that he could have been. I know he was supposed to be like this power forward type, and I, the jury, I, I have no idea if he could actually have been that power forward type because, or like a more effective power forward than he was. Uh, like, he seemed to, what I'm trying to say here is he seemed to do the job that Toronto asked of him, but still, Toronto was mad at him for not uh, exceeding that role when they sort of put him in this book this box and they said be that uh and then when he finally got to the rangers and then the thrashers in the twilight of his career he broke out unfortunately it was too late for him and like yes he was playing with kovalchuk in atlanta but he also uh kovalchuk was injured his season that big season in atlanta for like 30 games so i'm taking antropov just because i feel like there was more there than he was ever allowed to show
0: Yeah, Antropov had a a very good career. He sticks around for a very long time. And you're talking about Leaf fans, whose idol is is still Wendell Clark, right? Right. So there's a certain type of style that they expect out of these players. And and this is a a really high pick for them. Like they, they traded away some of their other high picks. So this is the guy they took in the lottery and was supposed to be this home run for them. And, and I think some people would probably think they they reached for him and therefore there's all these expectations and he doesn't end up filling that overly physical type power forward player that they lionize there, but he still uses his frame very effectively in a way that I think would be appreciated a lot more now. So he was certainly in the mix to be drafted in this redraft. And for Carolina, they get a player who would be very effective for them. I kind of thought you were going to take Cole for them because he does end up being drafted by them. And in this redraft, he probably won't be available for them because I'm up at number 12, picking for Colorado. And I kind of think Eric Cole's the best guy left. So I'm going to take Eric Cole.
1: Yeah, I think that's a good pick. Eric Cole was a guy who always just kind of bored me. My Eric Cole story is that I always uh, told my to-be wife uh, that, like, we had to go when we were dating. Like, we have to go see a Montreal – like, she'd never really been to a hockey game before she met me. Went to a Sens game at least once a year. And then I was like, we need to go see a, a game in Montreal. And we, so, like, you know, I built it up for a couple of years. We go. Uh, we put, it like, wearing my son's jersey. And Eric Cole scores a hat trick against Ottawa. It, of course, it's against Ottawa in Montreal. Uh, in, like, the first 12 minutes of the game, uh, Montreal, I think, ends up winning 5 nothing, And we have these two very loud, drunk, and like terribly rude, and also speaking, like swearing at us in French, uh, people behind us, who just like made the whole experience so awful that I don't know that I can ever go back to a Habs game again. At one point, he like, was like swishing his beer, anyway, it was so annoying, and I was just seething, and I was just like, if I turn around and say something, or t- like it's just gonna get worse. So like, it just had to like suffer through what was just a terrible game, all because of Eric Cole.
0: But that's not Eric Cole's fault. He was uh, he was a really good goal scorer who, who he couldn't stay very healthy. But when he was healthy, he could certainly turn it on, as, as you demonstrated. I was kind of hoping that you went to the game where he scores and then he high-fives the ref.
1: Oh, no. That's an, all, that's an all-time clip, though.
0: hmm And you're right. He, he has that one great year in Montreal on that Pacioretty-Darna line. And I think that team, is that also a conference finalist team for Montreal? In any case, he's, he scores 30 goals a couple of times. And he makes a couple of conference finals. He wins a cup with uh, with Carolina. And if not for injuries, like the guy broke his freaking neck and came back to play in game six and game seven of the cup final.
1: Yeah, Yeah, that was impressive. impressive. Yeah. Yeah, I, I remember that injury, thinking it was over, and then he came back and was fantastic. I don't know that in his best season in Montreal, they even made the playoffs. Is that, that's, is that uh, unlikely?
0: Yeah. No, know, it, it's quite, quite possible. Um, but yeah, in, they in were like case... a,
1: a bottom feeder team. So way to go, Eric Cole. Way to have your best season for a team that was last in the Eastern Conference. What a waste. Right.
0: Well, in any case, you're up at number 13, picking for the Edmonton Oilers, and you could not possibly do worse than they did. With poor <laughs> Michael Henrik. He had he had a really long pro career, not in the NHL.
1: Yeah, and, like, maybe they just blew it. Maybe they picked the right guy and didn't know what to do with him. Uh, you know, here, I think, here it gets a little boring for me, to be honest. Like, so Jonathan Chichu is still on the board. Um giant is still on the board we've got david legwand mike fisher sort of creeping into view um and like you already you took spot so like i and boschman i don't think there are any other defensemen i'm going to bother with unless i want to rob scuderi was an essential piece of that la cup winning i'm not going there yuri fisher is a big what if uh he seemed to be a strong defensive player until his career ended early i think it was a hard issue Mike Van Ryan, another defenseman who just couldn't stay healthy but had this pedigree and upside that was supposed to make him someone. I'm just delaying because I truly, like, don't even know uh, who I want to pick. I guess I could I could go with Andrew Raycroft. I think Go with uh, your heart,
0: Brian. Go with your heart.
1: My heart, honestly, says David Legwand. Like, God, just just take all faithful here. David Legwand, who's going to play 15 years, be decent in all of them be a solid number two centerman uh, because at this point in the draft, you're just not going to do a whole lot better.
0: Interesting. Okay.
1: Yeah. Way um, off of what you were going to go for, huh?
0: Well, so at number 14, I'm going to take Mike Fisher. Yeah. And I want to throw this hypothetical at you. What if Legwand goes to Ottawa to start his career and Fisher lands in nashville how what do you think ends up different about those two guys careers
1: you know i honestly don't think a ton i really don't like mike fisher's bread and butter was a two-way centerman um and there were seasons where he could go on these offensive runs a, a fantastic player to have on your team in the playoffs but he also couldn't stay healthy um, both these guys were getting selkie votes over the course of their careers pretty steadily. Uh, so I, I honestly, I see them as one in the same. I only went Leguan because I felt like I was being a homer if I took Mike Fisher. But it, it, it comes down to both these guys as two-way number two centermen who have limited offensive upside, but are just they're just always there for you.
0: Yes. Yeah, so if Leguan ends up in Ottawa in the Fisher spot – like those teams go on and do the exact same stuff.
1: Uh, you know, maybe Ottawa, maybe Ottawa isn't as strong with Legwand over Fisher. So maybe if that's the point you're trying to make, then I agree. I should have gone Mike Fisher.
0: Aha! So we've rooted it out. <laughs> yeah, I, I really like Fisher's career. He he gets Selkie votes in nine different years. He scores twenty goals six different times. So he's not. Like he's not racking up huge point totals, but as a guy who's getting shut down usage for much of his career, he's still throwing up 20 goals on some teams that were they were relevant for all of the early 2000s. Those Senators teams were, and he even has that second run, that that late career run with Nashville, where they go yeah. to the Cup final again. And and by then, like when they're in, when they're actually in the Cup final, all of their centermen are hurt. So it's like Mike Fisher and then nothing else up the middle. So he he's leading a ragtag group into the finals against Crosby and Malkin.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I like the Predators were ended up being overmatched in that series, but Mike Fisher felt like a key piece. And he even got to do he was so good that he got to do, I can't remember if he was the Like, Justin Williams has done it more recently. I don't know if anyone really did it before Mike Fisher, where, you know, he took off the whole series, like, oh, maybe, maybe not. And then, you know, as the trade deadline comes and the playoff run's about to start, Nashville signs him and says, yeah, we we could use you. I don't think he was terribly effective in that role, but still, like, always the guy you want around. And also, super handsome. Mike Fisher is one of the most handsome hockey players, I think, uh, to ever, I don't know if ever, but to at least ever play in Ottawa.
0: Yes, yeah, certainly one more reason that you should have, <laughs> should have drafted him sooner. But maybe maybe all along you were holding out hope that he would make it to the number fifteen pick for you here, taken for the Ottawa Senators, Brian. You've mentioned you've got this list of players you're not really that interested in drafting. So if you if you just want to skip past this pick and and we can move on to two other things, then you go ahead. But otherwise make your pick for Ottawa?
1: Uh, well, I guess I'm just looking through the list of players that I wish I got to see play for Ottawa. You know who I would pick? Uh, Is I it need Sean to look Horkoff? Some... No, it, it's not. Does, I was, I was going to say Tyler Arneson, so that Ottawa didn't trade for him, but they only traded Brandon Boczinski in a second-round pick for him, so it wasn't a big deal. Um, okay. I, Chris Neal's on the list. Like He's a pretty effective Uh, long-term player who like was never a great scorer but seemed to be a really great representation of sort of the hybrid enforcer role that came to be in the NHL someone who could uh you know at least just deal with other teams most annoying players maybe make some players on the other team annoyed while still not being a total liability when he's on the ice so maybe I'll well no I, I would take Sean Horkoff long before I took Chris Neal so I'll I'll go Horkoff sure
0: Okay, and and other guys you could have taken Michael Ryder, Brian Gianta, Brad Stewart. They, these guys oh, all. Oh, I had, forgot
1: those. I forgot those guys were still all out there. So yeah, uh, those yeah. guys all
0: had good careers, but but ultimately, I don't I don't think we're we're changing too much uh, in this redraft with with those guys. wearing going in and around the lottery. Um, Brian, in retrospect, knowing what careers these guys had now, who won? Not the redraft, but the actual NHL draft.
1: Oh, it's got to be. It's it has to be Detroit, yeah. right? They got they got well. They got Yuri Fisher and Pavel Datsuk. So they drafted, I think, two of the better players in the entire draft. Um, so that's why I would say Detroit. Like it was a weak draft. There was not a lot of uh, really exciting picks made. So there's not a lot of players who are like, oh yeah, with that player this team really won the draft. I guess you could also say Tampa just by virtue of Le Cavalier, but I, I think there are very few teams. And Richards. That picked. Did they get, oh, they got Richards. Of course. Okay. So Tampa won. Tampa won the draft. That yeah. that was why you're, oh yeah. And then I was like buying myself time. I'm like, who is, who's he hinting at that I should have also grabbed. I guess Montreal got Boschman, Markov. So those were a couple good. So yeah, I, I, Tampa and then Detroit and Montreal seem to me to be the, Three winners. How about you? Any other teams stand out? I, w-
0: I would also throw out New Jersey getting Gomez, Gianta, and Van Ryan just because, well, th- those are the three teams that really win win cups with, with guys that they took in this draft class. So those are the three that stand out. I would agree with you, Detroit, just by getting such a superstar in this draft when Really, there wasn't another one that turns the tables. We talked about Datsuk being the type of guy who tilted the ice for 60% of the shots in some seasons, and you just didn't get that from anyone else drafted in this. So certainly the Lightning, they get a cup and, and some competitive seasons out of their first two picks in this draft, and they're very good for them for a very long time. But Detroit is constantly in the mix because of the magic man
1: yeah way to go detroit for i wonder if they were like i think we can hold off when they had it like in the second round third round like they knew they wanted datsuk and they just waited uh, like an expert drafter until the moment they knew they had to take him or if they were just like they really actually did want all the players they took ahead of him more because then you can't actually give uh, give detroit so much credit can you
0: well, so do you know the, the Datsuk draft story?
1: Uh, No. Is it like a phone call and have you seen this guy type of story?
0: No. So their, their legendary scout, Hakan Anderson, who helped them unearth some of their other late round legends from this era, he's over in Russia scouting Dmitry Kalinin, who's projected to maybe be a first rounder. Mm -hmm. And then he sees this kid on the other team with magic hands. And he's like, I got to, I got to see this kid again. So he sees him a couple other times and then he's going to see him one more time. And there's a Calgary scout who's also supposed to get on the same flight and they get weathered in. So they never end up making it to this game. And apparently Anderson's the only NHL scout who even sees Datsuk that whole year. And I think like Datsuk's 19, playing in not the top Russian league, but another tier down. So he's not on anyone's radar. He's, he's, he doesn't end up making the world junior team, but Anderson's like, this guy should be on their junior team. I hope he doesn't make it, because if he does, then everyone's going to know about him, and then he doesn't. And so they they could have taken him wherever they wanted, because um, no one else even knows about him.
1: That's amazing. I love these stories of these guys drafted in the late rounds. And it's, you know, that's one of the trade offs of scouting getting better is that there aren't similar stories. There, there are fewer secrets to unearth. So I, I, but I still wonder what the best, uh, the best late round draft stories will be in from this generation when we hear them 10 or 15 years from now.
0: Well, you know, there's going to be more because we're still drafting kids at 18, 17, 18 years old. And you just don't know what they're going to be. And I think that's, that's really inspirational because all these kids, they get drafted and it's, for a lot of them, it's the best moment of their lives. And for a lot of them, this is just the start. They get drafted and then the work starts and they start getting after it. And it doesn't matter what round you're drafted in. It's what you can do when you get your chance.
1: Yeah, and I'm I'm all for the underdog story. So give me all the sixth and seven round success stories, please.
0: Yeah, no doubt. So Brian, this was a lot of fun. I really want to thank you for coming on the pod and doing the 1998 redrafts and taking a trip back in time with me. It's really fun to do this with someone who is as psychotic about doing research. <laughs> as I am. So I, I think we really we really matched wits here and I'm very thankful for you coming on the pod. So Brian, why don't you take a moment and, and tell the folks what you got going on right now?
1: Okay, Steve. Thanks a lot. Uh I host a uh, co-host a podcast called the Keeping Carlson Fantasy Hockey Podcast. It's the best fantasy hockey hockey podcast in the world by two people who own Eric Carlson in their keeper pools. Uh, it has been running for I think six years now, we run this whole multi-tiered league with promotions and relegations called the kick or the Keeping Carlson Ultimate Patron Fantasy League. Uh, So we have this private Facebook group if you want to join us where like the hockey talk is still going. I don't know how aggressively I want to plug everything, but I I guess uh, please check out our podcast if you haven't heard it before. uh, Keeping Carlson, like as in Eric Carlson. And uh, you can also follow us on Twitter at Keeping Carlson.
0: Yeah, and you guys have perhaps the best fantasy hockey pod running right now. So, if you're in a fantasy hockey league, you can certainly tune into these guys each week. They're breaking stuff down and and even during a, a pandemic, you guys are you guys are continuing to churn out the pods. So, Brian, thanks again Once more, give a stick tap for my man, Brian Calm, co-host of the Keeping Carlson Fantasy Hockey Podcast, for coming on the show. I've been guesting on their pod for years, and I really enjoy the work that he and Elon do, and it's always a real pleasure interacting with those fellas. So Brian was an amazing guest, and I really hope to have Elon on the show sometime in the near future. I've got a couple more redraft pods in the hopper with Scott Wheeler, Larry Fisher, and Dom Luschishan coming in the next couple of weeks. So keep an eye out for those. And make sure you go back and listen to the first three episodes of the Steve Laidlaw podcast. We broke down the 97 draft with Peter Harling, the 99 draft with Ian Gooding, and the 04 draft with Russ Cohen. I feel really blessed to have these great people coming on the show to engage in this exercise with me. It's certainly been a lot of fun. If you're enjoying these pods, give them a like and a review on whatever platform you're listening to them on. And thanks for listening. Stay safe and keep your head up.